our passion and what we study and what the book's all about and all of our work, all these studies, is why do people take the actions they do? Why do they have the beliefs and the attitudes they have? And then if we know the why along with the what, then you can really change the future. That to me is what gets me so fired up. I just, I love it. We never know what we're going to find. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in lives and at work. I'd like to introduce our guest, who is someone I've admired at least recently. I've I've come to know him uh, and his work, and I'm honored to have on the show, Jason Dorsey, president and lead generational researcher at the Center for Generational Kinetics. Jason's led more than 65 generational research studies, worked with over 700 companies, and has a new book out, Z Economy, which I'm holding in my hand right now, How Gen Z Will Change the Future of Business and What to Do About It. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of your show and your work and uh, just really honored to get to be here with you. So thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of cool to see this book about uh, this, er- this, this new generation. And in fact, it's kind of interesting because you even talk about redefining the word generation. What, how, did, how does that shift? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for a long time, people talk about generations as if they're just birth years. And because we're behavioral researchers, we're really looking for the behavioral drivers to tell us uh, and behavioral norms, when did a group of people born about the same time and raised about the same place start to behave differently than those born before or after? So rather than the historic, oh, every 20 years there's a generation, which is total bunk, but rather, oh, look, this group of people born about the same time is behaving very differently than the one before or after. It's just a different way to think about it that we think more accurately reflects sort of the human element to this. And it also helps explain geographic differences around the world, the role of parenting and shaping generations, as well as the role of technology, all of things that we're sort of generational geeks about. <laughs> well, you get extra bonus points every time you say human or humanly on this show. So um, that's, that's exciting. Sweet! Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Gen Z, is it true that, that it's the 90s through the 2010s, that it's like age 5 through 24? Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Approximately. So as, as I talk about a lot in the book, when we look at generations, we're looking at predictability by scenario. And sometimes there's a defining event that separates one generation from the other. And then sometimes there's a transitional period where there's not a single event, but it happens over a longer period of time. So we know when Gen Z starts because one of the key discoveries, which is in the book, is that they do not remember September the 11th. And that is something that when we uncovered and we were able to prove it was a huge deal and all these big research firms had to ship their birth years. You may remember, because I know you've been doing this work for a long time, they used to say millennials went to 2000 as birth years. And we said, no, that's flat wrong, because if you're born after 96, you don't remember 9-11. And that's important because it tells us where one generation ends and, of course, where the next generation starts. So the oldest today are around 24, 25 years old, and 9-11 has always been history to them. They learned about it from their parents or in school or on YouTube or somewhere. But then you go to the other end of it, which is what are the is age of the youngest Gen Zers? And obviously, we can't study those because we do quantitative and qualitative research, and you can't do that on a national scale with the youngest. 
But what we do know is that those children who are around four and five years old today are having a very different experience during COVID than those who are, say, nine or 10 or 13 and so forth. Uh, my daughter, who's, of course, in the book, I want to be a good dad if I didn't put her in, you know, she's nine years old. And uh, right now we were just talking that she doesn't want to go visit her grandparents because she's worried that if she gets them sick, uh, from COVID, then that could lead to very bad outcomes. That's a, a real weight to carry around that we see nine-year-olds carrying, but not necessarily three and four and five-year-olds. So we we know at the very latest, um, the youngest are probably five years old. I think those will shift much like the millennial birth year shift as they grew up, uh, but that's a good approximate. So what does that mean when you say they look at COVID differently though? What's the, what's the, um, what is the difference? Yeah, we've been doing a lot of work on this, um, which some of which is in the book because you know, we're constantly doing these studies. So oldest members of Gen Z, let's just take those 18 to 25, they are actually bearing the brunt of COVID-19 in terms of their real world transition. And so if you think about it, you know, while generations and, and people frequently get this confused, I know oh, you don't because you study this, but lots of people do. And that is that you stay in the same generation, but you pass through different life stages, right? People ask me all the time, Jason, what are you going to do when you become Gen X? I'm like, well, <laughs> that would be strange because I'm a millennial. But what you notice is that you pass through these life stages. And so that 18 to 25 period that they're in right now is incredibly important. That's when you're supposed to be finding your self-reliance and independence and sort of generally leaving the home, whether that's to work or to school or whatever it is. And what we found is that oldest part has really had uh, felt like the, the carpet was pulled out from underneath them. They've had to return home. We have more people that age living at home than we have since the Great Depression. Uh, their careers that they thought they were going to pursue after graduation have been upended. Maybe they're not even careers anymore because they were going to study retail merchandising and now that's over. So all of that has, has had a huge impact. And, and I know you see this in the headlines about should I go to college this year or not, take a gap year and so forth. So you sort of have that experience. But then when we look at the youngest members of Gen Z, let's take that nine to 12, or even a little bit younger than that, eight to 12. What we see is right now, while this experience is horrible, and, and we're not trying to find you know silver linings here in, during the pandemic, what we are seeing is that the generation is already finding things that are positive that we know they'll carry forward. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. So my daughter last year in third grade, uh, her final project, which we didn't know she did, was she's on Google Classroom. She uh, built out a slide presentation. She built it out in English and Spanish. She animated the whole thing. She presented it, recorded it, uploaded it, did all that without ever telling us, and then uh, was got feedback from her teacher by video and recording. And to her, that was a totally normal way to now turn in her homework. Mind you, you know, a few months before that, she would have never done that. So what we're seeing is that the generation is adopting technology skills and relationships that are very new for kids that young, frankly. And so we know they're, they're going to carry those with them, including adaptive learning and a bunch of these other pieces. At the same time, the youngest members of Gen Z are going to get the positive uh, sort of benefit of learning from the oldest members of Gen Z what to avoid. A good example of that are millennials like me. We crashed into the Great Recession. We suffered from unemployment and wage stagnation, rising costs of living, all these sorts of things. But younger millennials saw that and were able to sort of change course, course correct, if you will, and then come out much better because they benefited from the older part of the generation from suffering through the, the worst of times on the economy there. And so we think that Gen Z will have the same part where the older members, because of where they are, there's a huge difference, as I know you know, you know, from the 15-year-old versus, say, an 8-year-old in terms of how they process this and so forth. So we think that, and we're not sure how it's going to play out long term, but we know that the oldest members are going to bear the brunt of this, also adapt, and then sort of, you know, figure it out. We think they could have three to five years of diminished earnings ahead, particularly if they were going to go enter the workforce. We know they were in our new study the most likely to be laid off, um, have a loss of hours uh, or have wages uh, reduced. 
So we're, we know they're going to bear the brunt, but the youngest might actually get some things out of this that are more positive. And frankly, the more time you have before those big transition years, the more time you have to choose to adapt. And oftentimes your parents will help you to adapt. Because remember, these Gen X and older millennials who are parents of Gen Z, they want to help their kids through this transition too. And so we expect them to sort of work through that as well. So we think there's going to be a pretty big difference between how older members of Gen Z and sort of this 18 to 25 or even 16 to 25 come out of this versus those who are, let's say, 6 to 12. Um, and that's really due to life stage and then um, distance from any of those core sort of key life transition times. I know that was a long answer. I'm sorry about that, but I'm a dork about this. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you love what you do. Is that true? Oh, every day. It's the greatest gift in the world to try to figure out why people do what they do and all these unexpected discoveries. Like when we figured out that the generation wasn't tech savvy, but tech dependent, like that sort of changed everything. And, you know, there's so many parts of this, but, you know, our whole passion and my, I say our, because it's the co-author Denise and I of the books economy, but our passion, how we got into this is because people were saying so many negative things about millennials. And then ultimately I got data from our clients and I was like, this data, this doesn't match what the CEO just told me in the boardroom with all the, you know, the board, this is very strange. So I said that to Denise, I said, you know, this is the strangest thing. I just talked to the CEO who's very confidently declared what was going on and that millennials are basically terrible employees. I got their data and it doesn't match what he just said. I said, Denise, what do you think we should do? And she says, we should start a research firm. (laughs) Clearly there's a disconnect. And our focus, which is, I think, directly dovetails with what you do so incredibly well, is most of the data in the world that people refer to is what we call tracking data. So it's tracking sales went up or sales went down or eyeballs went up or eyeballs went down or you know, traffic or whatever. You can pick any of these. The problem with all that data is it's all one historic and two, it just tells us what happened. It doesn't tell us why. And so our passion, what we study, what the book's all about and all of our work, all these studies is why do people take the actions they do? Why do they have the beliefs and the attitudes they have? And then if we know the why along with the what, then you can really change the future. And that, that to me is what gets me so fired up. I just, I love it. We never know where you're going to find. That's so cool. Um, I, I just love your passion and energy. And then on top of it, the data is so exciting. Um, and, and I'm curious too, it's almost like, uh, you know, the way that you open your, your book, it says, welcome to the new normal. And then the first sentence, the very first sentence, Gen Z is already putting legacy companies out of business. How is that possible already? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've observed, and it's it's really interesting, is that for the first time, technology trends, particularly consumer tech trends, are being driven from the youngest up to the oldest. And this is a huge shift. I mean, we talk about small shifts. So we could say it's a small shift because it's driven by a young generation, but huge ramifications. What do I mean by that? Well, it used to be that technology trends were driven by those older and more affluent. They were the early adopters, and then they would drive those trends down. But what we're seeing now, because of the very inexpensive cost of most consumer tech, how it's really driven down. And in parts of the world, you know, you get a phone for free if you use it for payment. So all of a sudden, the youngest are adopting the technology and then driving it to the oldest. The example I like to give, we interview tons of Gen Zers who talk about this. They will only talk to their grandparents on FaceTime. You know, or even on FaceTime with their parents. And so all of a sudden, they started driving these trends up, just like we saw with social media. The youngest drove it, the oldest rolled their eyes. And next thing you know, my mom's all over Facebook. And I'm telling her, stop putting hearts on your comments to me. <laughs> You're my mom. And so we're seeing that really drive it up. And I think that has huge implications for banking and buying cars and how they're going to shop for homes. Ultimately, and certainly we're already seeing that with apparel, 
music and probably the easiest is entertainment in terms of just how they consume content today and how other generations are starting to mimic that. This podcast is brought to you by Penji. Penji is an unlimited graphic service that connects you with the top 2% of graphic designers in the world. Get the creative output of an internal design team without the overhead cost. Receive custom design projects from logos to flyers, from digital print, and even UI UX. I know because I've used them. They're perfect for, for graphic design service if you're the person that's either doing all the graphic design yourself or maybe you have an internal team that's just too busy and you need to outsource some of it. I've used them in creating our latest project, a 42-page ebook on productivity for coaches and consultants. It turned out fantastic. I've been very impressed with the overall communication and delivery. And what's great about Penji is that you're not just working with one designer's skill or style. Your team's skills can be treated like a design buffet. You can request a logo, custom illustrations, and even a website design all under one plan. This is because I need that level of flexibility and it's hard to find that by hiring a freelancer online. And not to mention the longer you work with Penji, the more they learn about your style and the brands you work with. Because you're a listener of Humanly Possible, the podcast, you get 15% off your first month. The process is simple. Before you sign up, enter the code H2H15. That's H number 2H15. And once you're in, submit your brief for the first project. I recommend submitting clear details so your brief is totally understandable and add visual examples so the team can see your style and knows exactly what you're looking for. Need a few edits? You can make revisions directly on the platform. Projects are always delivered in under 48 hours. And overall, I was super impressed with the process that it ended up giving me more time throughout my day. I felt confident that Penji was going to get it right and I didn't have to micromanage. So head over to penji.co and use the code H2H15 today for a better way to outsource your graphic design. Again, that's penji.co and use the code H2H15. That's so cool. I can't wait to see uh, what kinds of companies actually get formed and what new things, because you talk a lot about technology, the use of technology, the the screen, the 4.7 inch screen, uh, or living life through that. And how do you see that showing up in the kinds of ways that uh, technology starts to innovate even further? Yeah, so some of this is really great and some of it's not so great. But since your focus is on the human element, I think we should cover both because that's uh, how humanity is, right? So what we found with Gen Z is a real anxiety when they are not physically connected to their phone. Their anxiety goes up if, uh, we've done a bunch of studies on this, if somebody else touches their phone, boy, they freak out, right? (laughs) And so there's a real anxiety and dependence on that, that mobile device as their connection into the world. And so it all automatically creates this very deep emotional connection and relationship. And then what we see as we look at sort of how they go about uh, their experience, they depend on going through that device in order to connect with family and friends now. I mean, you can even see them when they're, you know, Thanksgiving, they're on their phone texting the person on the other side or <laughs> messaging them. Uh, and so what we also see is it's their number one most trusted resource. And what I mean by that, and this is you know, somewhat scary depending on your views, is that Gen Z trusts social media more than other kinds of media. And we did a study, well, several studies that looked at this, but one of them specifically looked at uh, how they value different types of media. And YouTube, interestingly, was their number one most 
trusted source of information. It's pretty wild. Uh, relative to news, newspapers, television, cable TV, you know, th- you know, pick all of them. We tested all of them. And so social media came up as the most trusted. It was the one they were most connected to. It was the one they were most likely to comment and engage with. And then going further than that, if you sort of look ahead, what we see is that Gen Z most trust influencers. And I know that's a word that people define lots of different ways. But for our purposes, it was somebody on social media that had built a platform. And what we found that was so interesting about that is that Gen Z said they trusted social media influencers more than, and this is sort of the shocking part, more than people with fancy degrees like PhDs or MDs, more than people who claim to be experts and more than people who had put out books. And the, and the sort of the key thing was that they said that they felt likability, a connection to that person. They liked them. They liked their view of the world. And so they trusted them for these sorts of recommendations. And at the same time, Gen Z, we believe, is the first generation to not only come of age, only knowing social media. So that's to them, technology really is social media. But going further than that, because they've always known it, they're the first generation to come of age since the time they were very young saying, I'd love to be an influencer. That's now a career. So rather than people think, oh, you know, this is uh, some paid spokesperson chilling on a billboard, they're looking at the people on, you know, Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever going, well, I'd love to be like that. And actually thinking that maybe they can. And there's a great story in the book about one young lady. She said, you know, I went to college. I did all these things. I got all this debt. And then I look at one of my high school uh, friends who became an influencer and now lives this great life. And here I am, you know, sort of working in this generic office job. and, And they're so successful. Now, obviously, that's all perceived. But it's just so fascinating that one thinks the other one is more successful. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> oh, you got to love social media for that. Um, it's it's certainly going to be very, uh, well, I guess, interesting to see how that works, but also how they work with brands. And I know you did a lot of work on that. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. So the brand part, gets uh, really interesting and nuanced. So one of the things that we've been sort of studying and, and thinking about a lot is, you know, as a generation emerges, so the oldest are now 25 and we've been doing our, what we call state of Gen Z. We do, we've been doing a state of Gen Z study for the last five years. Our new one's about to come out. And so we do this really in-depth study looking at Gen Z versus millennials and break it down all these different ways. And, and when I talk about studies, just so everybody sort of understands our take on it, for us, that generally means a margin of error of plus or minus 3.19 out of 20 times. So we have at least 1,000 completes. It's weighted to the U.S. Census for age, gender, geography, ethnicity. And so we have studies going all the time right now. We have them in, in the U.K. and in Germany and in China and stuff like that. So I share that only because when we're talking about studies, this is not like, hey, I put up a post and ask my Facebook friends to answer it. <laughs> That's not what we do. We have PhD researchers that run everything. And so when, when we think about sort of going forward for brands, one of the things we're really interested in is a sort of brand trust, brand integrity. How does a generation think about brands? So what we've observed for the last many years is that Gen Z is very cause-driven, meaning they want to know what a brand stands for and they go on social media to figure out what the brand stands for. And what we found is for the last four years, uh, what Gen Z most wanted from a brand in terms of social cause that they could you know, believe in and be a part of uh, was climate change. And or they would use the words or the phrase climate crisis, and they want to know what the brands were doing about it. That was something that really drew them in. And I point this out because our latest study, which we just finished, that we haven't released yet, that's actually changed now. And now what we're seeing is social justice is the number one thing by far, even above climate change. And those two have really broken away to sort of define the generation. So on one hand, we know that Gen Z absolutely wants to know what our brand's doing when it comes to these things. And we're going on social media to see if you're being true to it. And you cutting a check just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's not, that's not real. You know, I like to joke that these brands that show up on social media and they got a big check that they're holding on the 50-yard line of a football field. I'm like, well, first of all, 
Gen Z will never write a check and they'll probably never receive one. So that's a monetary instrument that they, they don't use. And they're like, whoa, they're holding a big piece of paper and you wrote in cursive on it. Great work. <laughs> Not effective. So one, we want to get the brand values right. The second thing we found, and a lot of this you know, is all detailed in the book, of course. The second thing we found is just how highly visual they are when it comes to wanting to engage with brands. And what I mean by that is we found that a lot of Gen Zers didn't want to take the time to read. Not that they said reading was work, although they weren't far away from that, but they were really saying that social media engagement with brands is completely visual, often video. And so video to them is sort of the currency of information. I think that's really important because there's still brands out there that haven't made that switch. But video and imagery and so forth is really important, particularly those, those brands and the videos and imagery that shows you ex- like without all the touched up stuff. So Gen Z rated Aerie really high because it shows people that look like them. And that was a very big deal, particularly where they are in terms of consumers. And then, you know, going further from that, what they said that it was so important is they use social media and online ratings and reviews that to determine whether or not they would make an initial purchase. And I think this is important. Gen Z is coming of age. So they're making a lot of first time purchases. And there's always much more risk in a first time purchase then a second, third, fourth, or fifth, right? Because this is new. I'm buying something I've never bought before and from likely a brand or, or a group that I've never bought before. So when there's more risk involved, what we see is that Gen Z goes and they look at a lot more ratings and reviews. In fact, some of them that we studied, they would look at up to 30 ratings and reviews before deciding whether or not to make a first purchase. And what we found brands had to do, besides really pay attention to this way more than they do with millennials, but what we also found is if Gen Z thinks it's hard to return the product or get a refund for the service, that really limits them from buying it. Because again, they've come of age expecting that everything is easy to return. There's not going to be any cost and basically lowering the risk of making that purchase as low as possible. And you know, I talk about this quite a bit because technology is my thing. But one of our big breakthrough discoveries we're famous for is this phrase, which is technology is only new if you remember it the way it was before. And Gen Z does not remember a time before smartphones, before social media. Now, uh, the new paychecks that are coming out, this in the book from like instant financial people, Gen Z gets paid every single day. So if you get paid every day that you work, that changes how you think about money. And then going further than that, we found, and this is super cool, that Gen Z was the uh, generation most willing to give up their personal data online in order to have a better online experience. So more than any others, they said, look, we will give you more of our personal data, but we expect then that you're going to serve up highly personalized, highly individualized either content offerings or engagement. And when I engage with you in the future, you're going to be able to remember what those were. And so that way, I'm not having to go back and sort of, you know, fill my shopping cart up again or tell the chatbot or whoever it is, you know, about me. Like they already know these things. And so all of a sudden, you have a, a consumer group that's coming of age using truly digital for everything, payment, dating. I mean, you name it, it just goes on and on. All of that stuff happens with this generation at this really critical time. And they represent what we believe other generations are ultimately going to get to in the sense of they want recommendations, pick what they want. They want to make sure it's highly personalized. They're increasingly visual. This is really neat to see other generations sort of move in that direction. They expect people to do everything on mobile and not have to switch to a laptop in order to complete a purchase. Like all of these things, it's all Gen Z has known. And so people, uh, particularly execs, because, you know, most of my clients are CMOs or CEOs or these tech companies that grow really fast, lots of venture capitalists. They're like, oh, well, Gen Z represents so much change. So we want to make the most of the change. I'm like, no, they don't. Gen Z doesn't think they represent change. Gen Z just brings all they've ever known. (laughs) It's not even change to them. It's just normal. You know, there's so much packed in there. We could spend a couple hours just unpacking all this 
incredible information. And um, while, while I want to do that, I also want to close out on this one thing in, in understanding what kind of leaders are we raising uh, in Gen Z and how does that look, especially with the political climate that we have right now and the financial climate we have right now. You know, we're looking at Gen Z potentially as the, and, and, and maybe beyond as, as the, the, um, and I use this this word lightly. I know how you feel about generation, but um, uh, that 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 generation to come through and hopefully take us to a better place. What, what yeah, do you think absolutely. about that? Yeah. So you know, change often comes by generation. You know, people often say, "Well, you know, they the, the generation saw what they wanted and made it happen." It's generally not true. Generally, what happens is something took place that they don't agree with, and they had a very strong emotional response towards it that really unified them, brought people together against sort of this, this common nemesis that they needed to change, and, and they, they sort of stepped forward towards that. So when you think about what's going on right now, let's start with the money piece, because the money piece, I think, is a big shock for people. What our research has shown, and this is a core part of the Z-Economy book, is that Gen Z is much more frugal than millennials or previous generations. And this is a shock, but let me explain. Gen Z came of age during the Great Recession. And what I mean by that is their parents are Gen X and older millennials. And so people sometimes say, oh, you know, Gen Z suffered in the workforce during the Great Recession. That's what made them who they are. And I'm like, no, they were 12. (laughs) But their parents did. And they heard their parents talk about and they felt the fear and the anxiety and people losing houses and millennials drowning in student loan debt. And you start to put all that together. What we found is that Gen Z is much more frugal with their money. The way we see that, they're driving double-digit growth at thrift stores. They expect to get a good deal. In fact, value and utility are the top two things they want from a brand, product, or service. And what that means is not just a good price. They want things to last a long time. And the only time they'll pay full price and really feel confident about it, if they know it's going to last a long time, because then it's obviously worth more to them over time. So as you start to think about that, they're saving. 12% of Gen Z was saving for retirement before they were 22 years old, which is just mind-boggling to me. They have emergency saving money on their phone. If you ask them, hey, where's your emergency account? They'll show you. I've got $43.12, which is pretty wild. And then if you sort of look at what they're looking for in the future, what Gen Z tells us they want from employers is stability, which is pretty shocking. It's sort of the opposite of millennials who want fast growth tech companies. I want stock options and move up quickly. Gen Z wants the opposite. They're telling us they want stability. I want to know you're going to be around. Number two thing they want was benefits, which is really shocking because they're so young. And so as you sort of look and start to frame it through that, the way they think about money and debt, um, they're trying to avoid debt as much as possible, graduate college if they choose to go with as little debt as possible. Right now, they're saying, hey, I don't want to pay for college. I'm not getting the full experience. Or if I don't know, I'm going to finish. So all of those things sort of play into the idea that they're much more um, practical or pragmatic with their money, which I think is really shocking but very reflective of how they were raised and really a strong response that bodes well long-term as they sort of move into adulthood. In fact, Gen Z uh, financially looks like baby boomers, which is pretty interesting. Uh, some of our large employers, we get everybody's data, of course, uh, they, they share with us their retention data. And Gen Z retention was higher than millennial retention for many of these employers prior to COVID-19. So they were, they were truly staying longer than the generation that was older than them, which shouldn't be happening. So we see them on one hand, really thinking differently about money and being much more sort of thoughtful and um, sort of risk averse, which we believe will bode well. And, and frankly, I mean, this is pretty controversial, but I don't show away controversy. We think that Gen Z could leapfrog some of the millennials in the workforce. 
Um, and we talk about this a lot in the book because if you graduate college with as little debt as you can, if you're not getting consumer debt because you're trying to avoid as much of that as you can, and you know you just start to add these things together, they think they have to work a long time. They're uh, intentionally trying to have you know less expenses and on and on. It does set up a situation where they could leapfrog some of the generation before, and, and obviously we go a lot into that in the book. In terms of the leadership roles that we know, the number one thing uh, and two things that we see that Gen Z wants right now in our latest study is they want candor from their um, bosses. This is particularly true if you, they have remote work. Tell it to me straight, like just give me the truth, which I think is interesting. The number two thing that uh, they said they wanted was more information, which makes sense. They have the least work experience. It's pretty cool. They have the least work experience of any generation their age. So the 22-year-old Gen Zer today has less work experience than the 22-year-old millennial, and certainly less than the Gen X or baby boomer who all started to work much earlier. So they're 22, but they, let's say, have less experience. So they need more information uh, from their boss. And then the third thing they said they wanted was more empathy, which is sort of interesting because they feel they really, you know, have had the rug pulled out from underneath them. So when they look up at, and towards leaders, it's very clear what they want from those leaders, which I think is interesting in terms of politics. And, and you know, generally, broadly speaking, I stay out of politics, but I'm happy to talk about election drivers. We know that Gen Z says social justice, number one, incredibly important, strong emotional connection to them. Uh, the number two thing we see is climate change. And then we see all kinds of other things around equity and really just trying to lift up other people. It's probably the easiest way to say it. And so we believe that that will have a pretty pronounced impact on politics going forward. Now, where it gets trickier, and this is just getting in the weeds, but I know you like details, where it gets trickier is when we ask Gen Z and millennials about political activism. What does it mean to be active politically? We didn't ask them what party, we didn't ask that sort of thing. We just want to know what does it mean to be politically active? What was really fascinating is that the younger you are, the more you defined being politically active by engaging on social media. So you would say, I'm politically active. I engage on social media. And we would ask them all these different ways. And that would keep coming up. The older you are, this is where it gets super interesting. The older you are, the more you define being politically active by actually voting. So it was, it totally flip-flopped. So the older you are, being politically active was voting. The younger you are, the more about being politically active was um, actually just engaging on social media. And that's important because that, that speaks a lot to voter turnout and what's ultimately going to happen uh, that way. But we are seeing um, politicians better use social media in these other places to drive engagement. The key is, uh, if, if you're you know, trying to get engage young people, is not just drive engagement, but actually drive them and get them to ultimately vote. And that, uh, candidly, that, that is still out. And we will find out, I think, if there was ever a time we're going to find out during this election cycle. So we'll see how that um, plays out. But it is really interesting that they would say, I'm politically active without saying voting is part of that. <laughs> Does that make sense? It, it's, it's, it's very unexpected, but at the same time, it sort of speaks to where they are. It may, sorry, I, I hit mute to cough there, and then uh, I was speaking just to myself. Um, it, I, it makes total sense. And, and at the same time, it's such a different way of looking at things. I can't wait to see how the, all this plays out. And uh, man, are you a treasure trove of data. It's just like, um, it just, uh, how, I don't know, how do you keep it all in there? Uh, <laughs> I love this. This is what I do every day. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's such a great gift that I get to run, I'm curious, right? And I just run a research firm that gets to ask questions all day long. You know, we have two studies going into the field right now. And it's like, wow, it's pretty cool that I get to ask all the questions that, you know, people ask me that I don't know the answer for. I'm going to go ask that question. <laughs> so well, you, you've, 
it's such an incredible thing. And and congrats again on your your book, Z Economy. Uh, you and Denise, it's a great, great job. I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited for everybody else to do it. Where can everybody find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can find me directly at jasondorsey.com. That's my personal website. I have lots of videos up there and you can download all kinds of interesting reports. Everything's free. We give it away. Uh, and then if you're really interested in the research and you want to get dig into the data and get state of Gen Z and all those other pieces, you can find that on our research website, which is genhq.com. And then the Z Economy book is available everywhere, um, particularly on Amazon, but whatever works for you. Uh, and I actually got to read the book with Denise, which was really fun for the Audible. So that w- that in itself was a uh, human behavior experience. <laughs> Again, another bonus point for you for saying human. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all the great work you put on the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.